Today, we're talking about restaurant franchising. If you're unfamiliar with franchising, it's used when an already established and successful business gives licensing rights to other entrepreneurs to start their own business under that brand's name. So you'll most frequently see this in the fast food or mainstream dining world. Think McDonald's, Culver's, and KFC. So let's say you have a successful business and you're starting to think about franchising. How do you even start? What are the pros and cons? And in a post-COVID world, what does franchising look like now? Hi, everyone. I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. When we described it earlier, franchises are not actually owned by a corporation, but rather the owner of that original business. Then they license the brand and operational model out to other entrepreneurs. So for example, like McDonald's. Right. That's the first one that always comes to my mind anyway. Yeah, same. Um, I just always, we, I, it's an interesting one too, because I think that's obviously one of the most ubiquitous restaurants in the world anyway. Yeah. And it's not like everything is run from one central office. Right. I think people know that they're all different, but it shows you if you want to look at like the textbook example of a franchise run well from like a corporate standpoint, it's great because there's so little deviation. Like, you know what you're going to get when you walk into a McDonald's by and large, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's really the location that changes. It's not, it's not really the packaged goods or the service. It's, it's really just where you are. You know, so I feel like restaurants that are franchises have greater flexibility in general on their restaurant's location. And it also seems like their staffing choices and how they decide or how they decide how they're going to integrate into their local community. So I feel like, you know, at McDonald's, you feel like they're, they're, you know, they're participating in local marathons. They do things with sports teams or fundraisers. You know what I mean? There's still a way for a larger corporation or brand to have a presence someplace without needing to invest something from a central office. Like you still get, you know, the big brand identity that people know and recognize, like they right. want their Dunkin' Donuts, they can go out and get the coffee that they know they like they've had across the country. Um, but it's not being run by some faceless person, um, you know, sitting in a corporate office in a different part of the country, which it's, I mean, that's good. That's good. I mean, for a lot of people that, that saves a lot of the legwork of having to establish a brand, obviously that's what you're buying into. Well, yeah, you get Keyword all this extra buying. help, right? The menu. Exactly. Um, and a lot of this, but a lot of the decisions are chosen by the franchisor. So I don't know. In in an independent restaurant, you can expect probably to pay a lot more money and make a lot more decisions since you're the sole owner of that company. I mean, Zach, I feel like this is right up your alley. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the difference. If you're buying into a franchise, it's not like you have to develop a menu or come up with very much. You don't have to pick brand brand motifs or like mood board anything like, you know what you're mm -hmm. getting. You're basically plug and playing. You know, it's like I wouldn't call myself a furniture designer if I was, you know, going to Ikea and, you know, buying a bench and putting it together. Uh, but at the same yeah. time, I know that I would probably do it well and I would have like a functional piece of furniture for the restaurant. Right. You can do the same thing here. It's like if you know your your part of town needs a Taco Bell or it needs a coffee shop uh, and you don't feel like coming up with a brand new brand or, or identity and you've got the cash, this can be a great way, especially depending on the location. Say you're servicing an area that isn't so much looking for a, a one off a one-off brand like you need like mm. something in an airport you know like we all see franchises in malls and in high volume areas where, where recognition and brand recognition can be key i think that's really some of the the biggest value of yeah. franchises you know you come to certain places and that's like a check against you being a big corporate name but in certain instances i feel like it makes the most sense because it's almost a guaranteed success to have a recognized brand in a place where a lot of people are walking through oh yeah and i like that you brought up 
you know, if your town needs a Taco Bell? Because the answer is always yes to that question. I mean, 150% yes. The few Taco Bells that are in the city of Chicago always have lines out the door and or drive throughs that are 10 cars deep late at night because you know when that Nacho Bell Grande craving hits, you got to go. Especially now with the can, I got. I've been asked out by multiple friends to go meet at a Taco Bell cantina because they can get liquor licenses in the city now, so you can go have margarita, that's beer, right. whatever you want. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. We have a couple of those too. I know yeah. that's so cool. I, uh, I I remember going as a kid, and I mean, you never saw something like that. So no. anyway, so I feel like people also talk about the money with franchising, and that you know, let's say you're already a successful restaurant and you're ready to start a you're ready to start a franchise. I feel like, you know, you need a lot of monetary backing, but I mean, to be honest, you need a lot of monetary backing if you're going to independent as well. Right. No, it's like, it's not like you get off scot-free if you're starting up your own business. I think you sure. set yourself up for failure if you undershoot your fundraising and then try to go for everything you want. Um, and, and don't yeah. budget that out accordingly. But at the same time, it is a lot less restrictive because you can, come in with an idea and then cut corners as you go in. Whereas you can't even get off the ground in some of these franchises. If you don't have the amount of money they want you to have in the bank going into it. Right. Right. I mean, I read online that, it, uh, per eater.com, if you wanted to own a halal guys, which is really popular in New York city and other areas, you have to prove that you have at least 2 million in net worth and 1 million in capital to even be considered to do this. So, which is almost crazy to me because you think like this is, I mean, I guess that's what keeps your brand solid, right? It's like you're only going out to people sure. who are willing, they're not going to, you know, leave you on the hook for cash. This is them kind of assuming that this location is going to survive because you've got the funds to keep it running, um, you know, all right. things considered. But it's crazy because, you know, Halal Guys is a very straightforward business that started at a food cart up in the 50s uh, on the west side of Manhattan. Yeah, that was, we actually brought this up on another episode, but they used to be like a location as like a cart. And to see them blow into this franchise like this, it's like actually pretty crazy. They are so, they are such a different uh, explosion than like, I, I remember, have you seen the, the McDonald's? I know we keep coming back to them, but they're such a good example because it's literally textbook in a lot of ways. Yeah. But the McDonald's movie about Ray Kroc, when he finally came oh, up with yeah. the idea for it, took it from the brothers. Yes. Um, yes. It's just one of those, like they talk about so much in that, like how his original idea at franchising, when he like kind of spun it out to his friends, they pointed up with the money, but then he got mad because I remember to this day, it still blows my mind. But the, one of the guys in the in the movie who had franchised it to, he accused him of turning around and selling burritos at it because they're in Southern California. And I was like, I wonder what a McDonald's like burrito would taste like. Uh, but that's one of those things is he came up to him on the golf course in the movie and he told him, he's like, you can't do that. This is like, this is how it's got to be done. My way or the highway. Uh, and, you know, he obviously like he gave them a system and kind of like broke it down for them. But it's just really interesting to see that compared with something like halal guys which started from a much much smaller endeavor and now is requiring you to pony up one to two million dollars to buy in yeah it's it's a very i I think it's really interesting and it kind of just shows you like the the economy of scale and like the what what it means to buy something like this like the brand recognition should be driving you more sales in general i think especially now that a lot more of this stuff is available for delivery online yeah for sure uh, and people are actually going to these things Well, and also it's like the idea is that you take one franchise and you make your money off of that, but you don't stop there. You know, one pays for the other, the revenues of that will help you get the other next one started, get the next one started, get the next one started. And then they just become these, you know, I mean, obviously the goal is that they become these cash cows for you. So, you know, you hear about people, oh, I own all 30 McDonald's in this city and that's why I'm 
That's why I'm yeah. so, you know. One of my good friends in high school growing up had his dad owned all the Dunkin' Donuts in my tiny town in Massachusetts. See? And it was like, well, he made, they made a ton of money. Yeah. It's just like one of those things. It's, it's like, it is like the Monopoly board where if you buy up all the spots and you control all of it, then like, then all the income goes to you. Yeah. Uh, especially in a place like I am in Massachusetts where Dunkin' Donuts is like next, is like God level. Right. So it's one of those things that it's a guaranteed smash success. And the more you have, the more money you're going to make. So I thought this was interesting. In 2020, Culver's opened a company record of 50 restaurants. And mm. in general, they're seeing that at the beginning of the pandemic, um, obviously we saw all these restaurant closers across the United States, but that now a lot of these franchises are doing even better and at pre uh, higher than pre-pandemic levels. And so, and they've opened even more locations. And, you know, I kind of wonder if you, when you think about franchising, I always think of like comfort food. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that today with Spencer and Melt Shop in New York City. But I think like, wow, I mean, perfect timing during the pandemic when that's kind of what a lot of folks were after. Uh, so I wonder if it's partly that. And then also partly there was all these open retail spaces. And so people really pounced on them and were like, hey, like, let's put another McDonald's in there. Let's put another KFC in there. Well, I think a lot of it too, after COVID comes back to what people know is safe, what they, what they're comfortable with, mm -hmm. not just comfort food in the sense that it's like rich or decadent, but also just in that, like, you know, it, it's, it's something that you, you remember, you remember. And, and on the business side, it's solid. And on the business side of it, it's also like, okay, this is a tried and true concept and we can plug and play this with all this free real estate or this open real estate. We should just kind of run with this concept. Right. So it does make sense to me that like post pandemic or the ongoing pandemic, I should say, that those have struck a bit of a different chord. Even in Manhattan here, I'm watching more and more franchises kind of peel in. Like Popeyes have been opening all over the place in my neighborhood oh. uh, and nearby. Um, so stuff like that, I think depending on the strength of the brand in general, I feel like so many people have been talking about Popeyes and their fried chicken sandwich in the last two years, last year and a half. I mean, I was just going to say, I'll tell you where that's coming from. That's coming from the Popeye chicken sandwich craze, I know, you know. <laughs> which I was just reading about in the New York exactly. Times recent article on these menu and cravings and how restaurants and eating out uh, post pandemic or things that we did during the pandemic that will change the future of restaurants forever. And that was one of them was chicken sandwiches and this explosion right. that we saw. I'm like, do you remember pre pandemic? Everyone was trying to find that chicken sandwich from Popeye's and like they were selling it everyone. everywhere. Talk about brilliant, brilliant marketing campaign on their part. You have the strategic tweets from people being like, I've heard the one down in Chinatown still has it. You should run down there and get yes. it. And I was like, yes. Oh my God, I can't believe people are like, it was like a Supreme launch, you know, like there's it's just like, it was so limited. And I think maybe it was doctor to a certain degree so that they could uh, drum up that oh, interest. Yeah. But on the same time that, that kind of, I think that sort of experience elevated the brand. Like you have these, these certain brands that I think are so tightly controlled and where they go. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a franchise or not, but something like an in and out the, the idea that like they're only located in very specific places so that when you go someplace else, you can be like, Oh, I get to try this. I feel like where I grew up in Massachusetts, we really didn't have that very many chains. So like that was one of those things that that kind of moving around the country, it's like, oh well, I finally get to try out this this yeah. restaurant for the first time. Yeah, you know, something like an In and Out Burger, where you know people they they're so popular and they have such a reputation that people literally like detour travel to go to. Mm -hmm. Like that's the sort of thing that's a that's a goldmine of a franchise if that's the strength of your brand. Uh, right, the beginning, the early days of Shake Shack remind me of that. Oh um, yeah, so. It's really one of those things where, and it's it to some degree, Shake Shack still, but like to some degree, that shows you why this is such 
a lucrative thing for the people who sell the brand out. Like they're going to make a lot of money when they sell their franchises. But that's because yeah. they're maintaining uh, they're maintaining a system, developing and maintaining a system, and sending it out to people who can use it to make money. Yeah. Yeah. And for the record, everyone, In-N-Out Burger is not a franchise. However, I mean, seeing those lines and seeing like how Kylie Jenner really put them on the map with all of her Instagram posts about, you know, she was always eating In-N-Out Burger and you know what I'm talking about? The Kardashians are really obsessed. They, with I did not have any idea there was a relationship between the two. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm not. Oh, yeah. I so there's out. a lot of celebrities in LA that are very obsessed with In-N-Out Burger. And I've seen it on their Instagrams. This is the pop culture knowledge of Claudia right here. I'm telling you, they have like, they, they, it's like the brand works for itself. Like these people just like it. And then they post all these Instagrams and then we see these lines out the door. I mean, I wanted to try it. I thought to myself, God, why don't we have one of these here? I see all these celebrities. Because I mean, they won't. I mean, talk about like. That's why. That's why I don't have <laughs> right. one. And that makes right. you want exactly. it more, right? I mean, that's the idea is if they decided to franchise exactly. it, they could make it's a promo. mint. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's an in and out just out, just the closest one you can get to from LAX that people specifically like send their their ubers there or whatever when they when they first get to lax they go straight to that in and out yeah get their food and then move move on into the city <laughs> or if they have a connecting flight they leave the airport go pick it up and come back to the airport wow which is that's that's the strength of a brand right there i mean for real they've got to have some sort of secret sauce what what sort of what's what's their big thing i don't even know they do all right There's there you go it's like sauce. the big it's mac secret good. sauce <laughs> <laughs> yeah Trust 20 is a proud sponsor of the So You Want to Run a Restaurant podcast. Trust 20's new ANSI accredited food handler training provides industry workers with an engaging and entertaining course that is digitally available on your phone, tablet, or computer. Get your new employees up and running faster than ever with Trust 20's new program. This training course is now available for individual and group purchases, and you can use this code today, PODCAST50, that's PODCAST and the number 50, to get 50% off your training. Get Food Handler certified today at Trust20.co. So You Want to Run a Restaurant is powered by Back of House, the leading independent platform for independent restaurant operators to find, filter, and save on the technology they need to succeed. If you haven't checked them out yet, you need to head to backofhouse.io. All of their resources are free, and don't forget to subscribe to the free newsletter while you're there. This is honestly one of the best weekly restaurant industry roundups I've ever seen. Their incredible team of writers cuts through the noise and gives you the headlines that you actually need to see each and every week. It's built for restaurant operators and full of important industry news, expert perspectives, and special offers on cutting-edge restaurant technology. Follow Back of House on Twitter at BOH underscore news and at We Are Back of House on all of their channels. So if there's one thing that can appeal to almost any palate, it's grilled cheese. Similarly to pizza, meat eaters and vegetarians alike can find something in this cheese category to enjoy. And Melt Shop in New York City is catering to just that comfort food style palate. Spencer Rubin, founder and CEO of Melt Shop, is here with us today. This tech-savvy business started in 2011 and has now grown to 15 locations. So we're excited to talk to Spencer about his story, how he built the restaurant, his move to franchise virtual brands, and all the cool things that he and his team are up to. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy you're here too, Spencer. It's great to have a fellow New Yorker on the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, actually, I kind of want to start off just by talking about the 
New York and and everything that's happened here in the last year, I, I finally get the opportunity to kind of share some experience with someone who's who's been working in the same city as me. What's it been like? Just I want to get your quick or your as long as you want it to be uh, experience of what this year has been like for you. Like how have you worked through all the problems that we faced? And I know that we're kind of seeing things kind of bounce back again. Like what what's everything been like for you? Yeah, so it's obviously been a very interesting time. I mean, just like starting back to um, the beginning of 2020, Meltshop was kind of on a, to- a tear. We were, we were we were seeing like really strong same store sales growth. We were up about 12 percent over um, 2019. We were getting ready to do a lot of things in terms of innovation, new product launches, and then the pandemic hit. And we we at first we were like, all right, you know, like a lot of people you know, let's get ready to hunker down for a couple of weeks. You know, this thing's going to pass. And then, you know, we realized pretty quickly after that, we were, you know, this is going to be, we're in this for a long haul. So yeah. first thing we did was really try and respond as best we can to the community at large. We wanted to be a participant. You know, you saw a lot of places closing um, out of fear, which we totally understood and respected. But when we reached out to our team internally, we said like, how, how do we want to handle this as a collective? And it seemed like everyone wanted to, contribute in any way we could. And so we started giving out free lunches um, for, for school kids who couldn't get access to a school lunch. We started doing um, something called Melt It Forward, where we were giving out um, tons of meals to um, people on the front lines um, and essential workers. We, we were uh, donating like thousands of meals a week to hospitals. Um, and we did that for a very long time. And we kept um, we have four locations in Manhattan. Three of them have been open the entire, like the entire pandemic, never closing their doors at all, um, which is something I think our team was really proud of. Wow, yeah. Fast forward a little bit after, you know, we we were really trying to figure out, all right, now that we've done a lot of things to help in the community, you know, what are what do we need to lean into from a business perspective? How do we need to start clawing back some of this revenue that we've lost? And we saw all of our business shifted to off-premise and a lot of business shifted to the dinner day part. And so we started changing our menu a bit uh, on our core offering to cater to that um, that need state, meaning dinner and delivery. Um, but we also then simultaneously saw a major opportunity to test out some virtual brands. And we did that early. I mean, we launched our first virtual brand in the beginning of April, 2020. And so we weren't necessarily following a trend. We were like ahead of that trend, I think, not in, in the grand scheme of things like virtual had already been happening for a bit of time. But I think right. we were we were very early, especially in this market, to launch a virtual during the pandemic. Um, and that sent us down a, a, a bit of a journey. I mean, we, we spent uh, last year, we launched four virtual brands. Three of them are active today. Um, we have two more in the hopper that we're waiting for the right time to deploy. We launched a new technology stack that has helped us um, uh, tremendously, um, both for our core brand, which is MeltShop, and in, in, in the virtuals as well. Um, and the list of things that we've done over the last year just goes on and on and on. Uh, but it's been a, a crazy time. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the one thing that I would say that um, I can I can look back on fondly, even though it's hard to look back on this you know, this period fondly is that we went into it and we said to ourselves, like, we want to leave this better than we, we started it. And we want, we sure. want to come out of this, you know, the best brand we've ever been with the best operations and the best offering. And although, 
you know, unfortunately this pandemic isn't over yet. I think I can look back right now and say with confidence, like we really transformed ourselves and we are the best version of ourselves we've ever been today. That's amazing. That's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, the last year was nothing if not an education crash course on so many different things or also just like awakening, uh, a wake, a wake up call for so many things that probably had to change the businesses anyway. But I mean, you're running a pretty, it seems like a really scalable, awesome thing. I'm, I'm very impressed that you were able to execute a lot of this stuff. So many people were kind of, you know, thrown off the cliff in in the last year to to adapt and change their their setup. But that's kind of amazing. I mean, yeah, I think the one big difference that I saw between us and a lot of other brands our size, I mean, we really took a like a contrarian point of view when it came to product. You know, you saw a lot of people slim down their menus to basically like nothing mm-hmm. and got into this like hunker down position to really like ride out the storm. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. Like that definitely was a worthy strategy for a lot of people. So I'm not knocking it. But what, what we felt was like we needed to create new products to meet guess where they were and, and meet the need state of the customer today. Um and that that really energized us to get in the kitchen and get creative and, and innovate like we never had before. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So you talked about implementing a tech stack and you implemented all this, some new technologies during during the pandemic. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So pre-pandemic, we had a loyalty app as well as um, we used Olo for our native ordering channel. Um, and we felt like we needed to really optimize that experience for the expectations of, you know, the consumer today. We had built that, you know, it was probably like four years old at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up moving our loyalty program over to punch we built a new native app and web app experience that still sits on top of Olo. Um, but within that, we also layered in some of the virtual brand work that we're doing. So you can now actually access our virtual brands through our app or web app. You can order from any of them. You could check out of multiple carts or one cart, um, depending on you know how you're looking to do things. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're seeing you know consistent um, month over month growth, um, and our, uh, database of loyalty users continues to increase every day. We are learning new and fun ways to, you know, interact with our guests, um, yeah. which is really, you know, really exciting, you know, to have that, that line of communication and, and, um, the ability to, you know, really interact, you know, from a loyalty perspective in fun ways has just been amazing. Um, we also launched an SMS um, program over the course of the pandemic that's been really successful for us. We use Attentive for that. Um, so we've done a lot of cool things. You know, it's re- it's truly been a very busy yeah. uh, year for us in terms of new new products and new tech that we've launched. Yeah. So I, I'm curious. I know you said you said that you've you've grown. The, the amount of customers to your loyalty program are most, and you said your virtual brands are on there. And I want to talk to you about your experience with virtual brands, but do you think that are most of the customers you're adding on coming through for the virtual brand or are they coming through for MeltShop? Great question. I mean, we're still the majority of our traffic is for MeltShop core. Um, mm-hmm. But right now, um, system-wide sales of our virtual brands is about 12% of system-wide sales, which is yeah. an exciting number for us. 
Yeah. I, I like it because I think, um, you know, I've asked other restaurateurs this about, do they think virtual, do you feel like virtual brands are competitive to restaurants or complementary to your restaurant? And I, and some of your lessons learned there too, because I know you also had a brand that shut down within six weeks that you, that you kind of yeah. mentioned there. And um, tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So our first, our first brand was Melt's, Melt's Wing Shop and we launched it you know, I know the name may sound a little like, oh, that does does that totally make sense? But the whole <laughs> point of that was to be a it was really meant to be like an MVP and a beta test for us to like yeah. understand, you know, how virtuals work um without getting ahead of ourselves from an investment perspective. And it immediately took. I mean, we were we were smart in in that we saw wings as a as a category that was getting hot. Um, oh yeah. You know, we launched we launched that before I think it like really like yeah, yeah. you know went through the roof um last year but uh we we quickly saw traction like it was immediate and we knew that virtuals was a a, a fun place for us to play and a place that we were going to drive incremental revenue and so we started looking around our kitchens and we started looking at our our um like our our core competencies and where we had product credibility like from a guest perspective and we looked at you know where did we have capacity from an equipment perspective and we really naturally went to cheesesteaks you know it's cheese it's bread yeah it's, it's protein. kind of in that whole like it's in the theme of things that it was it was within the realm of things that i think people would think of us yeah. th think to use for, right and yeah. so but little did we know, you know, there was very little demand for cheesesteaks in, in Manhattan at the time. Right. There was very little demand for lunch delivery at the time. Like meaning like cheesesteaks, I don't think are as consumed for dinner as they are for lunch. Uh, yeah. um, not to say that they're not a dinner product. I think they are a solid dinner product for the right person, but it just didn't take the same way wings did. And we, we pulled a bunch of different levers. We tried a bunch of different things, but ultimately because you know, you need volume to create quality product. You know, if products were sitting on the shelf, you, you know, it's not good for anybody. And so we weren't happy with how we could maintain product quality at that volume level. And we started to lose interest pretty quickly. And we talked to our team that was, you know, kind of the location that was sponsoring the, the, the beta test of this virtual brand. And we had a vote and everyone decided to kill it. And we were like, all right, let's fail fast. Let's move on. And yeah. let's, let's, let's like, let's, look at what we learned from this exercise and let's retrench and do it again. And so we, after trying a few things and not seeing much progress, we ended up turning it off. Um, and they were killer cheese steaks, by the way, it was, it was really just a matter of, there wasn't, <laughs> I gotta say, I'm, I'm bummed. I didn't get to try this. I would have totally, oh, they were freaking great. I was craving a cheesesteak through, through lockdown. I was craving a cheesesteak so badly. It's one of those things I like couldn't do for myself. It's not the same, you know, uh, we were, <laughs> we were using, we were using like these Gambino, like hot pickled cherry peppers uh, and banana pepper. We had this like crazy pickled pepper combination. Oh, that was just like insane. Oh. Um, so anyway, I feel like you could we, put those uh, on the grilled cheese, right? I mean, you could add those. Oh, uh, they're on there. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, 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 that's grilled cheese for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we put them on freaking everything. Yeah. Um, so, so there was there was a lot of things that translated. So we were we were like the actual product was amazing, but like you know, having high quality bread, you need to move bread. You can't just have bread for days, or you throw you know you have to use it fresh. Right, so, that's true. You know, we just weren't we weren't thrilled with like our ability to like to 
contain the product quality on that with the volumes that we were hitting. And for those reasons, we, we shut it and we quickly moved on. Um, we create, we ended up creating Mac shop and crispy chicken shop, which are both doing well. Our mac and cheese is like insane. Mm -hmm. wow. We have a pimento mac and cheese, buffalo mac and cheese. We do a hot honey mac and cheese. We even do a burger and fry mac and cheese where you put like a cheeseburger and french fries on top of mac. Um, so we do all these cool things. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Very creative. And the, like both of those brands that we followed up with, you know, we learned what we did wrong from the first one. We made the changes for the second one. We tried to create um, menus that were um, desirable for multiple day parts. And those are working really well. You know, we're happy with them. So, but, but we learned a lot of lessons on cheesesteaks. It's a good thing to learn on. It's making me hungry too. Yeah. So I, I'm very curious now too, because it sounds like, you know, you had a big success with your, with one thing and, and not quite so much with a cheesesteak, but do you feel like, but you're, entire business model that you kind of started with grilled cheese it sounds like you've taken this like concept of something that's like very recognizable wholesome and and relatable and you can turn it into something so big is that is that why you pick grilled cheese like what i kind of want to get into like what kickstarted your career in this field because or what the genesis behind this idea was because you're not just making grilled cheese like you can go to a bodega and get that but you're you're doing something like a little different like what what got you into this realm and, and what kick, kickstarted your career in this way yeah i mean i love questions like this because i get to like reminisce about like the the you know the, the start of this whole thing um so we the reason why we we launched grilled cheese was specifically because it kind of gave us a lot of creative flexibility like we you yeah. know like we saw we saw the better burger movement cruising and, you know, continuing to pick up steam. We saw better pizza kind of cruising and continuing to pick up steam. And grilled cheese was this like super familiar, approachable product that everyone kind of grew up with, but like no one, there was no restaurant category that existed for what was, I think, a lot of people's favorite childhood staple. And so the same way, you know, kids start off with a simple burger or simple piece of cheese pizza, you know, kids start off with a simple classic American on white bread grilled cheese. And we thought like if we thought it was another vehicle to kind of grow similarly to those other categories that, you know, you saw. It's like you you think of a, a kid's menu at a typical like restaurant. It's usually like pizza, burger, grilled cheese, chicken tenders. Like that's it. Right. And <laughs> yeah. so we're like and all of those things grow into restaurant categories. So like this deserves a category of its own but we want to do it better and we want to do it, you know, fancier. And we want to like have like some sh chef driven fun with it yeah, for adults. So yeah, for adults, right. for adults, yeah. <laughs> um, Maybe kids too. So, so yeah, yeah, it was for everybody. That was the whole point. You know, the whole point was like this thing could cast a really wide net. And so we saw a ton of white space there. Um, but, you know, we really wanted to create what we, we called at the time stylized approachability. So like we wanted to create a product that was like styled and cool and fun and funky, but also like really approachable to the masses. And that was, that was kind of what drove all of our, our product innovation when we were, when we were getting things going. What we realized early on though, is like people don't realize that, um, you know, like really high quality cheese is more expensive per pound than like meat. And, you know, you need a lot of cheese to make a grilled cheese. Um, and like when you put all of those really high quality products together, you know, it can cost a lot. Um, 
you know, so we, we, we quickly learned. I do have experience in this field. You, I, I was going to say, I have experience in this field as well. We sold grilled cheeses as one of our fancier grilled cheeses as our food offerings over at the beer bar, but we were dealing in very like, fine artisanal cheeses. And my business partner and I are both like, I can't believe how much you can actually end up putting into in between two pieces of bread can end up costing so much money. It, you know, it's, it's very cost prohibitive. And what we realized also is like when we, when we started out on the very high end of the spectrum um, ingredient wise, you know, the, the, the cost to build them and sell them was too much for, for anyone's appetite. You know, like we, we had lines at the door and we had, you know, tremendous success from day one, but the price point of some of like the real, like we had stuff all over the spectrum, but the stuff on the really high end of our menu, um, we got a lot of pushback on. And so we started to realize people wanted things that were a little more approachable. They wanted things that were a little simpler. They wanted things that had a better price point. Um, And so we never compromised on quality. We just started to change up our menu to introduce some things that might just not be as sophisticated or complicated um and that worked out really well for us and you know like when we introduced our buttermilk fried chicken melt with sourdough bread and pepper jack cheese and melt sauce and slaw like people went freaking nuts and like it was one of the earlier fried chicken like artisanal fried chicken sandwiches in manhattan like you know it was a while ago and that's still on our menu today like that has that hasn't changed at all um and so when we saw people would shoot for that one that had you know, strong, it was still, it still cost us a a pretty penny to make, but um, the cogs on it worked at a price point that worked for the consumer. We started to lean into things that were more in that realm than the, um, like the imported salami with homemade pickled peppers on like the, the like XYZ rye bread and like had all these things that we killed ourselves to make and people didn't, people didn't order it anyway. Um, and it was like right. my favorite sandwich, which obviously that's the worst as, as a food person. So I feel like kill the thing that you love the most that right. like, no one wants to order. But because um, I bring kill your darlings, sometimes it has to happen. You sometimes know, sometimes it has to happen. So anyway, we yeah. you know we really started to optimize the menu for you know move you know doing our SWOT analysis and analyses I should say and um, you know moving towards things that guests really seem to gravitate towards on our menu and that's how we handle product. You know, it's like really like let the guests decide. Let's let's. If they don't want something, you know, you can make some tweaks, you know, to the name, to the price, to the explanation, to where it sits on the menu. But if all if those things aren't moving the needle, you got to kill it. Yeah. I was going to say, I also wonder, I mean, I read somewhere that you shorten your ticket time, your ticket time by thir- it was 13 minutes originally and you shortened it. Was it also like getting more strategic about your menu that caused that or what? Everything, you know, it's like. Iterate, 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 yeah. you know, like nonstop, 1% incremental improvement at all time. I think we, like we started out with this really, um, it was a small menu. I think we had 10 item, 10 sandwiches and like three sides, tater tots or shop tots, slaw and soup. Those were our sides. They made milkshakes. That was the menu. And um, what was super, What what is fascinating about making a grilled cheese at scale with homemade proteins and toppings and sauces in them is that you need to you need to be like so dialed in terms of synchronizing the assembly of that because it's not like you're going to like jersey mike's and you're like 
slicing some meat and throwing it on a sub, like you're, you're basically creating ham breaded, homemade buttermilk fried chicken to order and cooking fresh, you know, a hundred percent black Angus beef burgers to order. And then you're also cooking bread and cheese and toppings and sauces to order as if you're making a pizza, but then you have to assemble all that after you cook all those things, you know, together. And so the timing of that can be mastering. The timing of that was a process. And yeah, when we first started, we just did like what, what, what seemed to be common sense at the time, which was you take your bread, you butter your bread, you put your cheese on it, you put your toppings on it, you put it on the grill, you cook it halfway on one side and you flip it and you cook it halfway on the other yeah. side Then you cut it and you box it and you give it, you give it to the guest. Right. But the assembly and the melting and the cutting, like that part of the process collectively took much longer than you would think um, to get all those things melted through and heated through and cooked um, in a way that, that really made sense for the, de- the average demand of a midtown lunch guest. So then we started trying to like re-engineer the thing. You know, we would, we, we, we would make like cheese and bread and topping kits that we would cook on the grill this was all done on grills back then, by the way, with like steak weights. Um, we would cook them on the grill um, and then we would open them up and fill them with the protein, like the hot buttermilk fried chicken or burger. So you were cooking those two things simultaneously and then you were like sneaking it in at the end. <laughs> that, that worked That worked well for speeding up timing. Yeah. Um, but what that did, um, so we, we tested that for a while, but then what we learned is it, it basically like compromised some of that melt factor that you get when you like, you know, that pull that you really want to experience um, when you're eating a grilled cheese. Yeah. Or the, the melt that you see when you're pulling a sandwich apart. Right. So we realized we were like, Oh no, we, we created a new problem. Right. Yeah. Like, like we, it, it worked when we were testing it small batch, but when we started to scale it, we saw that there were some, there were issues with that. So what I went then when I went I went on this venture to try and find like the best equipment package possible that would work for us to create these amazing melty cheesy delicious sandwiches at scale. Yeah, we wanted to ask you about that the packaging and the how you how you did it and how you kept everything all crispy. So this is so this is just this is the time. Let me finish answering this thing and I'll be two seconds and then we'll, I'll tell you about all the packaging stuff because that's next anyway. So. So I, I said, long story short, after like tons of research and flying around the country to different manufacturers, we realized, and also just looking at other concepts that were in different spaces that might be something we could learn from. It's like, all right, what do burger places do for assembly and for melting and things like that? How, what does a typical pizza place do? Um, what are some of the newer, cooler pizza brands doing? And we realized like, you know, essentially we, we're cooking our products similar to pizza and that you need to cook bread or dough. And you need to melt cheese and toppings. And so, well, unlike pizza, we needed to create like a, a like a, a sort of searing effect, like you would get off of a griddle to to create that toasty, crunchy yeah. thing that everybody loves in a grilled cheese, right? And so, we basically created this process where we use like a metal surface as as like a griddle, but we're using like a a, a conveyor oven, like you see typically used for for melting cheese and toppings on pizza. And so it's like, it's this grilling effect and melting effect simultaneously. And we actually- Sort of like a salamander that moves? Yes. And we're, we're essentially making like an open face sandwich. And then we 
fill it and close it and cut it. And that that change in process from that old that like the original grilling full sandwich with the weight on it to that, it really almost cut ten minutes off of our overall processing time. Oh, like wow. it was transformative. Wow. Um, so, I mean, sometimes you really can't reinvent a classic. I mean, that's yeah. Who would have thought that you would need something like that to? I mean, it sounds like relatively simple, even though like we just had to. to from you know getting the idea that you had to change it to fin- executing it, it sounds like you had to do a lot of work, but you figured it out. That's we totally figured it out, and you know sometimes you got to look to other places for inspiration and like the thing that might be right in front of your face. You know, yeah. like that's what we really learned that from that lesson, and uh, you know we still follow that yeah. today. In terms of packaging, you know packaging yeah. packaging was actually a little bit of an easier exercise. Like we nailed that really? earlier in the process. I mean, honestly, I would just, hey, I went to every grilled cheese place in the country, took their packaging home with me to my East Village apartment. <laughs> and then I also that like- That sounds like a delicious adventure. Sorry. It, yeah, yeah, it was fun. Research but, is fun. <laughs> it's, it's fun until you try like 50 sandwiches in less than 24 hours. Then, <laughs> right. then, then towards the end of it, the fun, you know, you, you, you try to, you need to remind yourself of the fun you were having in the first five sandwiches yeah. of the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, don't, don't let it fool you. It can get, it's a, a commitment. We'll put it that way. Um, but the, the, the box, like we started testing all these different boxes and I started, I was like reaching out to different like material manufacturers and getting like samples of different like moisture absorbent materials. And I was like cutting them and gluing them into different boxes. Like I had this whole like packaging lab set up in my apartment and then I would just invite people over and we would like test the results of my packaging experiment. So I would like make a grilled cheese. <laughs> nice. I would put them in like four different boxes and I, we would like hold them for 15 minutes. We'd open them up, we'd test them and I'd have them like write down their feedback. And that got me to this box that I loved. And then I found a manufacturer, had them mm-hmm. copy it. And actually the office that I'm sitting in, my first order of boxes came into this office because we didn't have like we didn't have a distributor that was willing to warehouse all of our custom made oh. packaging. And so we okay. brought it here and we oh, did self distribution on our boxes for the first, for like the launch. Wow. We, so you're basically taking, taking phone calls and stacks of boxes. It was, for, a you know, it was for the first like <laughs> four months of business. Like as soon as we saw, as soon as we saw what our volume was, we could convince our, right. our packaging, our disposables distributor to, to, to cover the cost on the next batch of inventory for us. So that wasn't, but it was, right. you know, it was a commitment on our, that was like the biggest, one of the bigger checks I wrote to start milk shop was for my packaging inventory. It's like, it was like 50,000, <laughs> you know, pieces or something. Um, so that one was easier. Wow. It's not, you make it sound easier. I mean, you were joking before the, the friend aspect of being able to like shop things on your friends like that is definitely, they always appreciate it. They're like, you're going to give me free girl cheese for just some notes. Every, I shot, I mean. I don't do it as much anymore. I probably should. But when we started MailChimp, everything was shopped. Like, I just did surveys for every decision. Like, I don't think I actually – I made decisions on my own. I'm kidding. But, like, there were so many decisions that were, were <laughs> involving, like, this, like, crew of people. I would, like, survey them on the name. I'd survey them on the menu. I'd survey them on the, the design. Like, it was – I had a lot of uh, collaboration there. Like it was, that was actually really fun. I I love like the collaborating stuff. Like that's one of the more fun parts about building a brand to me is just like oh, yeah. being able to run this by people. So it's like okay, I need my friends in finance, my friends who are doctors, my friends who are you know whatever yeah. to like weigh in on this, and not just my like 
super heady service industry people who are going to nitpick everything and they're going to tell me what they think of this. And, and it ended up giving you guys like really good packaging yeah. in the end. It's not, you know, now that I've gotten older, some now, people spend a lot of they money call it a board of, you know, it was called like my, my, my crew. Um, yeah, your crew. Yeah. Come over to my apartment and, and yeah. try this out. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about franchising and your move into franchising. When you first opened this, did you know you would go that route? And then how did you joining Orify Brands, how did that help with that? Or what was the relationship like there? Because I know you're also part of that group. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we always had the intention of like trying to create a national brand. You know, like that was that was yeah. always in the back of our head from day one. Like we, mm -hmm. I had a passion for the industry. I had a passion for getting into multi-unit restaurant ops. And I was also, um, a, uh, I had a desire to be a, a true entrepreneur. Um, and like those things combined, you know, this is kind of like the, the perfect segment of the industry, um, for me. Uh, so we always wanted to be a multi-unit brand. I think we, we didn't know what our path to get there would look like, whether or not it would be just corporate or franchising, but you know, the, we, we talked about franchising a bit early on, but it was definitely, it wasn't um, guaranteed. We wanted to see how some things, you know, shook out. As we started to scale and we realized like our AUVs were getting really competitive, like our cost to build was getting competitive and we wanted to enter some, some markets that were a little bit um, further from Manhattan we realized like the best path for us to do that would be through franchise growth. Um, and so, you know, it's been a really interesting journey for us. I think we've, we've been fortunate. We have um, uh, some really experienced operators in our franchise system. Um, we have some airports that um, we're excited to see reopen. Um, Which airports are you guys in? We will be opening in, in uh, terminal five at JFK. Oh. It's been under construction for a long time. There's been some, Fantastic. You know, gas issues that have been holding us up from turning on our, our cooking equipment for a while. But we'll have that location. And then we'll have Pittsburgh Airport um, reopen wow. um, as, as soon as that airport seems to have the density to, to support that. Um, but so I think, you know, our, our plan was to um, grow through both corporate and franchise, saving, you know, the majority of the New York metro area for us. And then starting to try and move down south a bit with some franchising. Um, that was going really well for us. I think the pandem pandemic has slowed us down a little yeah. bit. Um, but we still believe that's like a, an amazing growth vehicle for the brand and is definitely a space that um, we should be playing in for a long time. So also, Spencer, I hear you're part of something called Orify Brands in New York City here. Um Tell us about them and what's it like to be working with them. And I, honestly, I, I don't know if any of our listeners are, are going to know who they are, but like, what's what what are they all about? Yeah, absolutely. So Orify Brands is a hospitality company. Um, they own and operate their own brands. They franchise some brands um, and they've incubated some brands. So you know, a lot of, a lot going on here. Um, John and Andy, the principals of Orify Brands, have been part of Melchop since day one. They're they're they were my first investors um, and. At the time, they had a, a smaller hospitality company, um, and they grew that. In, that was called Five Points Partners at the time, and they grew that into what Orify Brands is today. Um, so I've been with these guys over 11 years at this point, um, and it's been phenomenal to have their, you know, their partnership and their mentorship 
and um, you know they sit on my board, uh, which is obviously um, super helpful, especially going through uh, a year like the last year. Um, and we collaborate on, on on nearly everything, especially the big decisions getting through uh, this crazy pandemic. So um, it's been uh, an amazing ride with these guys, um, you know, and I hope you know we. We keep doing some really cool things. So Spencer, it sounds like you did so much this past year. What is up next in 2022 for you and Melt Shop? Yeah, I mean, great question. I think right now our strategy really is focusing on our team and our operations and getting them the support they need, um, you know, more than we ever have before. You know, I think this labor shortage has been been real and been tough especially on the people that are working so hard and showing up every day. Um, so we continue to work through ways we can better incentivize our team, ways we can better motivate our team, ways we can make their job easier and more fun. Um, and the same way we innovate and uh, ideate on ways to make new and improved products for our menu, we're taking that same effort and getting creative with ways to uh, make our team's lives you know, exponentially better here. So that's that's a core focus of ours right now. On top of that, from a growth perspective, we are leaning hard into the virtual brand space yeah. like we have been. Um, we plan on launching some some new brands and we have an exciting project on the horizon that I can't share too many details okay. about right now. Um, but that's really in the works um, and it's taking up a lot of my time today. Uh, so... We have a lot going on. Um, you know, the goal is to continue to make sure that we are, you know, improving that 1% um, yeah. every day. Um, and, you know, with time, we're confident we can do that. So, uh, you know, next year is going to be a huge year for us. Um, and, you know, we're, we're excited to finish this year strong. Awesome. Well, we look forward and I can't wait to hear what the what the big news is once it hits the press. Yeah. I'm literally counting down the seconds. I'm literally counting down the seconds now to see when I can run out down to Five Eye and get myself a grilled cheese. So thank you so much for this, Spencer. <laughs> well, if you go if you go on the app or order.meltshop.com, we can Even bring better. it to you. That's so exactly what I'm talking about. Sign up for sign up for our, our loyalty program. <laughs> Even better. Even better. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us again today, Spencer. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, eat.news. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms.